Hey guys, welcome back to another podcast. Today I'm joined with Andrea Javasone, who's the managing partner for Amadeus Capital. Uh, Andrea leads the Digital Prosperity Fund and serves on the boards of multiple companies such as Travel Start, IP Access, and is the Amadeus representative at Credit Tech. Prior to Amadeus, Andrea holds an, an MBA from Cambridge, uh, as well as a BSc in economics from LSE. Uh, thank you for jumping on this podcast today, Andrea. Uh, can you please Hi, Max. Can you talk quickly about uh, what VC firms look for in graduates coming out of university for all the students that are listening? Um, most of the graduates, or, or I should say most of the junior hires we do in our firm at an entry level, they probably are graduate from a university with multiple degrees. Uh, we have really no requirement for that, but they must have some operating experience in either a corporate or a startup. Um, and then we train them. Most of the time they go back to industry for a while or they do an MBA or they do a master and then they reapply into the industry basically. Okay. So um, can you tell us a little bit about the Digital Prosperity Fund and what opportunity it sees in emerging markets? So the Digital Prosperity Fund is one of our three investment strategies that we have at Amadeus um, across multiple funds. And this strategy basically invests in companies in emerging market at growth stage. Growth stage in the venture world is defined in companies that are more or less break even, still growing fast. Probably they have revenues of five to 10 million pounds, but they still need funding to grow to the next scale. And we come in and help them internationalize and formalize their organizational structure, scale it. Most of these companies in emerging markets are technology enabled services. In emerging market, innovation uh, is still around the internet and a lot of it around e-commerce or online services. So these businesses are businesses that leverage technology to deliver a service online. So we have things like online travel, online education, marketplaces. So that's the focus for the Digital Prosperity Fund in emerging markets. Okay, so how resilient have your portfolio companies been to the effects of COVID? Also, how have COVID affected, you know, the, the middle class people in those emerging countries? So I'll start with the last question first. So it has obviously hit the middle class significantly because uh, even though the middle class has uh, a certain level of income, a lot of this middle class works in the informal sector. So they are single traders, single professionals that do not have necessarily a income from a company or a salary as such. And therefore, they've been impacted quite significantly. What we are notice, noticing through our portfolio is an acceleration of online adoption, probably because of lockdown. So anything that has to do with e-commerce uh, is growing very fast compared to pre-COVID. And I think that there has been almost like a step change in the evolution of this online adoption. So it's almost like we have shrunk the normal adoption path we were on by about two, three years. And I don't think it's going to go back. Some of the sectors are accelerating even faster. Uh, you know, a very good example is online education. We have invested in one of the leading online education businesses in Brazil, and they've done really well during this period. 
So that's what we have noticed around COVID. In, in terms of the impact on the portfolio, this has been varied. Some company like online travel have been hit more, some a lot less like the online education company I just mentioned. So it's a little bit varied. What, we, what we've been lucky is to work with amazingly strong entrepreneurs, some of them who had the experience of previous crisis and therefore they know how to react to this crisis and all of them regardless of their background or experience, they've reacted very, very fast. And they've shown an immense amount of grit through all of this. Um, they react, they were reacted proactively without us telling them that, you know, things were going to be tough for a while. So they've been very creative. They've been very careful. And they've shepherded the resources of the business very carefully through this period. And most of them are coming out of this now already. So all of them, whether it's online travel or online fashion in the case of Zilingo in Southeast Asia, they're now back on the way up. Now, it's going to take a while to get back to the levels of 2019, but directionally we are now on the right path. Hmm. So, you know, as, as you said, Amadeus invests in emerging markets and, you know, you specifically mentioned the online education business in Brazil. Um, many VCs tend to invest close to home. Um, and I was just wondering if you can tell our listeners if there are any challenges that have been posed in terms of logistics or operations when investing in emerging markets all so far away from, you know, Cambridge way or HQ. Yes, I mean, VC is a local industry at the early stage. But if you actually look at later stage venture and growth stage, you will find international VCs that just like us, invest all over the globe. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we, we live in a world where the entrepreneurs, wherever they are, they build global businesses from day one. There are very few entrepreneurs that, are, you know, that have only local aspiration. So if you think about it, entrepreneurship is global already. Our own investors, which tend to be large owners of capitals, are global themselves. So we are in the middle, need to adapt too, and we need to get, as VC operators, we need to become global as well. In order for us to become both, to be both global and local at the same time, what we have done slightly different than most other VC firm is to set up different funds for different strategy, where we have a, a team that focuses on one strategy. So to give you an example, I have a partner based in San Francisco that covers Latin America. I have another partner who just joined us that uh, covers Latin America and is based out of the East Coast and Bogota in Colombia. Latin America is a big market for us. And we used to have a venture partner based in South Africa. So there are ways of a later stage or a growth stage to support our portfolio companies with, without having a big team locally all the time. So when you and uh, Amadeus value these companies in emerging markets, do you emphasize any indicators because they're in emerging markets? And how largely does it differ from valuing large cap companies in you know, developed nations such as the US? So f first, of all, first of all, there are some uh, qualities in, in a business that we look for um, across all our investments. So first and foremost, quality of the entrepreneur and the team. That is for us by far uh, the most important driver of, of selection. 
we back entrepreneurs to succeed. So for us, the entrepreneur is fundamental to investment thesis. Secondly, is the size of the market. How big of an opportunity is this entrepreneur trying to address? Thirdly, is the quality of the product and technology. How defensible it is, is, is it, and how unique it is, and how does it turn the business into a highly operationally leveraged business using this product or technology? And in the case of emerging markets, you have an extra dimension, which is localization, which is how does this product have to be localized compared to other markets to fit the distribution channel and the consumer behavior of the local markets? And that's where we, and that's perhaps the difference between the digital prosperity funds and our other funds. Okay. So when you um, invest in a company, you, you have to obviously have an exit plan in mind. Um, what's your goal for these companies? Do you, do you push for, you know, an IPO or, a, you know, a buyout or do you just buy and hold? No, we, obviously we are a closed-end fund, which means that we have a fund life, which is usually 10 years. Okay. So on average, we have to exit our businesses during this period, although some of them go beyond that period, depending on when you invested yeah. during the initial investment period, which is five years, where you create a new portfolio. Um, basically, what we try to do is to build great businesses and then pursue the liquidity path that fits best with our entrepreneurs and our co-investors. These often tend to be IPO or M&A. Over the past five, six years, private equity sales within the M&A bucket has become very significant as well, has been an additional path to exit. We are not buy and hold in the sense that we can hold forever, but we, have, we are patient investors. So, you know, we like to build great businesses that return significant or superior return to our investors. So, you know, we are not buy and hold forever. Yeah. We are patient investors, but we pursue liquidity at the time where we feel that works for all the stakeholders in the business. Okay. So you mentioned that this particular fund is a, is a closed-end fund. Can you, can you talk a little bit about why you structured the portfolio in such a way to make it a closed-end fund? And yeah, the whole venture capital industry and private equity industries is based on this type of funds. Uh, open-ended funds are the type of funds where you, you, when you have a disposal instead of sending the, the disposal proceeds or most of them back to your investors, you're able to reinvest them, which is a slightly different structure. That is an exception in, in the venture world and the private equity world. So what we do is very much the normal for the industry. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it has worked, I guess, for the past, uh, well, you know, I guess almost uh, close to 70, 80 years. So, you know, the, the traditional model is five-year investments in new company where you create a portfolio, five years to continue to build and support these businesses, which often means reinvesting in the same companies. And during this five-year period, start to exit those investments. And, uh, and return capital to our investors who often they are themselves 
closed end funds or some sort of vehicles that have a period where they themselves have to return capital to their own investors. Okay. So moving on to some specific companies. Um, yep. So for example, let's start off with travel starts. Can you, can you tell our listeners what are the challenges and complexities in the African travel market um, and how travel start sold to them? Yes, it's a good question. Um, building a business in the online travel sector in Africa is totally different than in Europe or the developed market. It's probably very different from other emerging markets like uh, Southeast Asia and Latin America as well. First and foremost, here in Europe, you have intermediary where you can get the content from, whether it is uh, uh, pricing for airline uh, tickets or uh, pricings for hotels. In Africa, those intermediary don't exist yet. So what Charles has had to do is to develop their own content, their own proprietary content directly with the suppliers, which means direct links into the uh, capacity um, uh, software of low-cost airlines or the property management systems of guest houses in South Africa. Guest houses represent the biggest number of rooms in South Africa. So they've had to, over the course of many years, they've had to build their own proprietary content. The second uh, significant difference is that a lot of the business was done on desktop, whilst in Europe it has already moved to mobile, and it is now moving to mobile very fast. It is mostly, unlike Europe, it is mostly Android rather than iOS based. So you have to have different front end and UI. So I think both at the front end and the way the consumers buy, as well as the back end, the infrastructure that Travelstar had to build is significantly different and much more complex than it is in Europe. And then finally, the most difficult bit that they had to build is different payment systems in each market in sub-Saharan Africa, because that is a sector that is still not well developed. You still have to be able to accept cash. Obviously, you have to accept credit cards. You have to accept mobile payments. There is a much more diversified list of payment methodologies that we have in Europe, which is 95% credit cards. And that's what Travelstart had to build. Mm. Okay. So how much has Travel Start and maybe other companies that you've invested in in Africa have been affected by COVID? And how much have they relied on your extra fund? Uh, Travel Start is a pretty mature business, a growth stage business. And it has obviously been significantly impacted because it's both, it's a travel sector, which as we know, mm. is probably one of the most impacted by COVID. Yeah. Having said that, they have diversified product line. They are in payments, they are in corporate, they are in hospitality, they sell to government. So they've been able through their product lines diversification, somewhat alleviate the impact on just air and airline tickets. So we continue to support the company together with the other shareholders, which is mostly the founder. And the company has reacted very well, very fast, same as our other portfolio company. And we're starting to see a recovery early days, you know, but the green shoots have started to appear over the past three, four weeks. And so now we we're just supporting them in, in the recovery phase, if you wish. Mm. And, and uh, it's a similar story across our portfolio. Those that have been impacted the less, uh, the least, 
they we've just made sure that they continue to have the funding and resources to execute and accelerate. Um, and those in the middle is uh, a little bit of both, if you wish. It's uh, making sure that you have the resources to survive. So being defensive, whilst at the same time, have the ability to be offensive where needed to accelerate your growth. And, and we truly believe that at time of crisis, some great businesses are created. If you look at the industry of technology, some of the best tech businesses were created during time of crisis. Yeah. So under what circumstances, uh, maybe accelerated by COVID, but um, generally, would you consider exiting early? Not unless we have to. So not unless we feel that the value of the business has been um, diminished in a structural way and it will never recover. Yeah. Um, not unless the business requires a level of capital that we cannot support. Also, our co-investor in the company cannot support. Uh, in general, we have not had to make those decisions or those choices, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, we, at Amadeus, because we've been operating for 23 plus years, we, we already went through you know, two or three major crises. So nobody's ever prepared for a black swan like this one. Mm. But, you know, we've been through analysis of uh, portfolios in case of crisis where funding could become harder. Here in the UK for our early stage portfolio, we've been very lucky that the government has reacted very fast in a very proactive and positive way. So that is helping a lot. And so, you know, we feel pretty... I would say positive about the ability of our portfolio to come out of this crisis and, you know, continue to build value. Okay. So moving on to IP access. So IP access, correct me if I'm wrong, but IP access creates these, these sensors and, and cells. Um, so what information can they receive, compute and provide? And, um, you know, again, what's the opportunity that you see in IP access? So IP access in, is an indoor cellular coverage equipment company. So what does that mean? It means that it enables uh, clients, customers, to provide mobile coverage indoor, okay? And so they deploy in, in places like airports and train station and uh, conference arenas where, or supermarkets, where when you are at the back end of a supermarket, oftentimes you cannot get mobile coverage. And more and more, the call, a lot of the calls we now do are indoors. So that's where the business started and was very successful in that sector, continues to be very successful in that sector. The other two key areas that I've added to, um, and I'll come to your question in a second, is around uh, uh, transport. So they deploy their equipment on airlines. So when you go on Ryanair or many airlines and you can start texting is because of their equipment on the plane. And then uh, uh, cruise ships uh, or ferries. And then the other business is uh, rural areas. So they're deploying significantly in Africa, for example, where certain, let's call them wholesale operators, are deploying infrastructure, which they, they, they then resell to the local mobile operators who cannot afford to provide coverage in remote villages. Whilst the IP access equipment is so miniaturized and so specialized, 
where the cost of the equipment is significantly lower than the equipment of the large vendors. And that's where they're getting a lot of traction. Mm. Um, and then in terms of the, the data they collect, they obviously can collect very granular uh, location data and usage data, both for security reason, like anti-terrorist or for COVID-19. They're able to identify in a very granular way the location of a device. Hmm, okay. So um, what regions are most behind uh, on the 4G, 5G kind of uh, spectrum and, and, and why is that? Well, this is very much linked to, once again, average income and ability to buy smartphones. So I would say that part of Sub-Sahara Africa, um, West Africa, East Af West Africa mostly are probably less developed uh, or some of the least developed regions in the world. Um, some of those markets are just moving from 3G to 4G. Um, but you have to remember that uh, 4G and as it was, so the migration from G to 4, 3G to 4G and the same thing from 4G to 5G is very much done in a leopard spots type of way. So you will have metropolis or big urban area with 5Gs, but then you go out in the, in the remote area or of even countries like Spain or Italy uh, or Germany, for that matter, even the UK, and you will find that you'll be lucky to get proper 3G coverage. Yeah. So it is very much driven by urbanization, to be honest with you. So, uh, you know, in Gerberg, down in Santon in Gerberg, you probably have as good 5G coverage as you will find in Malaga or Valencia, or probably even mm. better. But if you go to remote area in South Africa, you will probably just have 3G coverage. Okay. On the other hand, in some parts of south of Spain or, you know, some remote islands in England, you probably have 3G coverage only as well. So I, I think uh, the coverage point is a very, once again, has to be analyzed in a very granular level. Okay. Moving on to Credit Tech, why does, why does Credit Tech operate in very specific but also seems to be very uncorrelated countries such as india uh you know russia spain poland uh, yes it's, it's a good question if you just look at the geography you ask yourself why and actually the reason it's that um, for what they do those markets are very very similar so when it comes to credit risk um you have you have various category of consumer lending risk. You have prime customers, you have what is called near prime, and then you have, you, then you have what they call subprime. And within subprime, you have many more categories, but let's keep at those three bigger ones. Now, in, in markets that are neither this very well-developed market, whether it's the US or the UK, neither much less developed market like some of the others that we invest in. In the countries like Spain and Poland, you have a very large population of consumers and middle class, which are very much credit worthy. They have a, a very good income, but they're still not prime customers because the banking system cannot measure their credit 
worthiness. Maybe they are self-employed. Maybe they're seasonal workers. Or there might be other reasons. Or maybe they're single traders. There might be other reasons why the banks, where they do have an account, most of them, will not lend to them. Or even sometimes they cannot get a credit card. Those are exactly those type of customers that Credit Tech is serving. And this is what is called the near prime uh, segment of the market, which often has an income which is similar to the prime customer, but for various reasons, it's an income that it's hard to certify and to assess the volatility of the same, which is exactly what Creditar has done with their machine learning algorithms. So they're able to lend to people that are credit worthy, but for a particular reason, they cannot get credit. And that's exactly the market that they are addressing. Mm. And in those countries that you just mentioned, those are the biggest markets for those near prime clients. Okay. 